This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. This is Tazria, guys, 5782. We're going to speak about the Haftorah this week. The Haftorah for Parshish Tazria. Okay, so Malachim Beis, Parak Dalit, Pasuk Mem Beis. This is the beginning of the Torah, and it's interesting because the rest of the Torah deals with what happened when Naaman got Saras and how he should get out of the Saras, and he went to the Jordan River, and maybe we'll speak about that in subsequent years. Maybe we'll talk about that at some point later on. But this, there's two psukim that start off the Haftorah that don't have to do with the story of Naaman, seemingly. It says, the Ish Bami Baal Shalisha. There was a man came from a place called Baal Shalisha. That seems to be what the place is called. The Yavah Le'isha came and he came to the man of God. Lechem Bikur, Vayave Le'isha came, I'm sorry. Lechem Bikur, he brought bread from, you know, the first grains. He brought the man of God, Elisha, these, this bread. Esrim Lechem Sorim, there were 20 loaves of barley bread. The Carmel Bitsiklono, as well as the kernels in their husks. Vayomer, and he said, Give it to the people, and they'll eat it. We don't know who said that. We don't know if it's the man who said it to Elisha, or Elisha said to his, his attendant, probably Gehazi, and he said, Give it to the people so that they eat. So when his servant said to him, How could I give this small amount of food to a hundred men? How could I give it to a hundred men? Vayomer. And Elisha said, Give to the people, and they will eat. This is what HaKadosh Baruch Hu said, They will eat and they will leave over. And that's exactly what happened. They gave the food over to everybody. Everybody had more than enough and they left over some of the food. Even though there wasn't that much, they left over some of the food there. So there's a couple things right here. Number one, where was Baal Shalisha? What's Baal Shalisha? So Redak says, this is a city that is mentioned in Sefer Shmuel. It's called Shalisha over there. It's known as Shalisha, but it's mentioned over there in Sefer Shmuel. Rashi says Baal Shalisha was the name of a country outside of Eretz Yisrael. There was a famine in Eretz Yisrael at the time, so it was something totally different. So it seems to be a different place. But by the way, it's a city either inside, outside of Eretz Yisrael, right around there. Targum says it was in a land south of Eretz Yisrael, right? The idea is Baal could be translated as plains. If anybody's done Baba Basra in the first parak, you know a Sedei Habal, right? A Sedei Habal. That's a sit, that's a field that we use that needs a lot of water, etc. Similar to the words over there. He obviously grew grain there. Maybe that's why he was able to grow things during the famine, right? His field was superior to others. It was known as a bowel field. Maybe that made it a little bit different from everything else. The Miyamloes said this place is the first place of all of Eretz Yisrael to grow grain every year. Again, this means it's in Eretz Yisrael, but it was the first place to grow grain every single year. This year, however, there was a famine. All the crops were delayed. It took all the way to Pesach, for them to grow anything. And even in Baal Shalisha, this area that usually grew grain a month earlier, they only grew grain at this moment itself. But this man obviously was a great man. It was a famine. He could have sold this grain for a tremendously high price. He could have spent all this money and gone somewhere else and done whatever. But he didn't. He knew that in this time, the rabbis and the Nevi'im would need money. They would need food. So he specifically took from his field and spent, this is literally, he lost a fortune, a fortune, and gave it over to Elisha and donating it to him, allowing him to be mentioned in Tanakh for all time. We don't have his name. We don't know the man's name. He's just Ish Bami Baal Shalisha, but he's in the Navi for this tremendous gift of his that he was willing to give in the middle of a famine. Now Rashi tells us this happened around Pesach time. That's when barley grain is reaped as opposed to wheat. Wheat happens by Shavuos. Barley is around this time. That's why it was barley bread. The wheat hadn't sprouted yet. And that makes sense, right? 
the man thought he was going to do a good thing. He's giving a gift over to Elisha, right? Not realizing, maybe he knew about the Talmudim, maybe he didn't, but he wanted to give it to Elisha, and he made sure that the hungry Talmudim, he would be, everything would be good. The Malvim says, really, this continues from the narrative above, what was going on before this. And again, the Haftorah starts right here, from this man from Baal Shalisha. But there's a narrative before, and there was a hunger in the land. So food, any food that they could get their hands on was chashev, anything that they could have, even if it was made from barley, which usually is called animal food, right? Nobody eats barley food, and even nowadays, anybody who eats barley food is obviously very, very disgusting, or it's a chalant, it's fine. Chalant is okay, because that's when it's cooked with meat, and then you're okay, right? But regular barley, it's disgusting, we all know that. So either way, he said, this man was bringing a special gift to the Navi, right, in desperate times. That's the idea behind it. So the Malvam says, he was surprised that Elisha suggested to give it to the other Tamina, but regardless, that's what happened, he did it, okay, and that was that. Rashi says, by the words of Elisha's attendant, again, we're going to assume that it's Gehazi. Gehazi was the attendant of Elisha, and we'll see things happen to him later on in the Haftorah with Naaman. Gehazi is probably the person here. He says, how can I give this to a hundred men? How could I give this food to a hundred men? This is what Rashi says in those words, kol lechem v'lechem, every loaf of bread. A weird wording of Rashi. Kol lechem v'lechem. What does he mean by that? Every bread to give in front of a hundred. What is he talking about? There's a Miam Lois here. It's a tremendous Miam Lois who points out that the Gemara Suvis Kovav says there weren't a hundred students here. Elisha actually had 2,200 students in his yeshiva. I want you to think about that for a second. Think about a yeshiva of that size, 2,200 students. Nowadays, we know, okay, the Mir Yeshiva, Lakewood, Panovich, we have these huge yeshivas, but I can't imagine a yeshiva with more than 400 students 100 years ago. More than 400? How are you going to feed them? Rameir Shapiro's yeshiva in Lublin. Right? They had a huge area, but we're not talking a thousand students. 2,200 students were right over here. That's where the Gemara says. And he says, the Miyamoli says, there were 22 loaves of bread. 22 loaves. It's based on the Gemara over there. 20 is mentioned by the Pasuk. We have Esther and Lechem. The word Lechem and Carmel add another two. So 22 loaves of bread, 2,200 students. So if you can do your quick math, guys, and I know you can do this, 2,200 divided by 22, you can do this. Every loaf of bread had to be given to 100 men. I'm so proud of you, Dave. That's good. That's really good. What, one loaf of bread for every 100 students. And maybe that's what he meant. He meant by how can I give one loaf of bread to 100 men? And that's what Rashi says. Each loaf of bread, how could I give it to 100 men? Because there weren't 100 men there. There were 2,200 men there. So why did Gehazi say that? Gehazi should have said, how can I give this in front of 2,200 men? Said Rashi, how could I give one loaf of bread to 100 people each? Because there are 22 loaves of bread and 2,200 people. are. That's good. That's really, really good. The problem with this is that I, I mean, I, I guess that's a lot, right? A hundred loaves of bread, or one loaf of bread for every hundred people. I guess that's a lot. But think about this for a second. The Chassam Sofer says in two different places, in his Sefer Chassam Sofer and in the Torah's Moshe, it still should have said, Lithnei alpayim umasayim anashim, in front of 2,200 men. The wording of Gehazi is still weird. Even if you say, how can I give one loaf to 100 people? Just say, how can I give this amount of food to 2,200 people? Why is he leaving out everybody else and mentioning 100 people? Listen, some so far I thought it was awesome. There's a remez here. There's a Medrash Rabbah in the beginning of Vayikra about the last Pusik in the seventh parak of Kohelis, 
where it says, Adam Echad Me Elef Matsasi. I have found a man, one out of a thousand. Out of a thousand people, I found one man who's a really hush of a guy. The Medrash says over there that if a thousand students enter the yeshiva, a thousand, a hundred of them will be able to learn Chomish. If a thousand students enter yeshiva and only a hundred can learn Chomish, only 10 will be able to learn Mishnah. When we say learn, I mean really understand it. A thousand students went in, a hundred learned Chomish, 10 people learned Mishnah, one can paskin. One will be able to paskin. Barley bread is not good for you. Do you know why barley bread is not good for you? So there's, it's interesting. It's an Ein Yaakov at the end of Sefer of Gemara Horius. It's not in the Gemara and Horius. But the Ein Yaakov at the end of Horius says, eating barley makes you forget your learning. That's what happens when a person eats barley. Funny, right? That's what happens every Shabbos when you eat chillant. And all of a sudden you lose everything. Everything goes out of your head. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. If you feed them like barley, that'll blow up inside your stomach or so whatever it is. Barley clearly was not normal food to eat, right? I, again, I would assume that chulin kills more people than everything else, right? It's probably a true statement, right? And as people keep eating. And therefore, 900 out of a thousand students, 900 out of a thousand students would be able to eat barley loaves. But the other 100 wouldn't be able to. Why wouldn't the 100 be able to? Because they're actually learning. Granted, they're only learning Chumash. But nonetheless, 100 students out of 1,000 wouldn't eat barley bread. They don't want to forget their learning. They don't want to forget their learning. So now listen to what it says. So if 1,000 people right, are going in to learn and only 100 people are coming out being able to learn, only one is able to actually pass and become a big rub, right? but you'll be able to have 100 people, that's why Gehazi asked, what am I going to give the hundred men? He didn't mean, how could I put this down in front of a hundred men? This isn't enough for a hundred men. He said, this is barley bread. What am I going to do with barley bread for the hundred men out of the thousand who don't want to forget their learning? He said, like, I realize that we're starving and it's times of famine and we got to eat something. But a hundred people here are going to forget their learning. We can't give this barley bread to them. What should we do? To that, Alicia said, Give it to them and let them eat. They're starving. We need to. It's a famine. Even though normally I wouldn't eat barley bread, right now they need it. Give even the hundred men who are learning mamish and are going to forget their learning. Give it to them. If it's a bracha from a Baruch Hu, they won't learn. Their, they won't lose their learning from it. Isn't that an unbelievable answer? So the hundred was the ichor. It's not about the twenty-two hundred students that were there. It was the hundred students that would lose their learning from it. How could I give it to him? And he answered, "That's exactly it. This type of." Bracha won't make them lose their learning. Hold on, Dave. Yeah. yeah so don't we have that same concept with olives? That olives have uh, that's one of the things mentioned in the Gemara and Horius and your Gimel. So, yeah. So isn't it weird that the things that are in Israel, like the gifts of Israel... Like Some of the, the well, hold on, hold on. Barley is... Yeah, I hear you. Shevaminim. Olive oil is very good for learning. Olive oil returns your learning. It's just a question of olives. And even then, Haragil Bezesim says the Gemara, if you're used to eating a lot of olives, then it's a problem. But if you just eat an olive once in a while, it's not that big of a deal. Plus, if you have the olives with the olive oil, then it might mitigate each other, and therefore you don't have to worry. That's that. The barley is another issue. Barley is another issue, which we say... Right, I don't know where the Anyako comes up with this, but he brings up barley that's not in the Gemara itself. There are other things over there. If you eat something that's eaten by a mouse, if you eat something that's eaten by a cat, etc., things like that, we don't understand exactly what that is. Yeah, even walking under a bridge that used to have water under that no longer has water under it. So right, I, it's strange things. I don't think it's shot. Yeah, Mati. If out of a thousand there should be a hundred that learn, but you said 
Yeah. Then should have set it for the So I thought that as well. And I think what the Chassam Sofer meant was that there's a hundred, but he's not being medayik in how many students there were exactly. I don't know if they had a roll call and they were going through, but like a hundred. I think that's what he meant. I, I think. I, I, I think that's the idea behind it. Okay. The strange thing is that a Kaddish Baruch who said, not only will it be enough, it's going to be more than enough. What does that mean? Why did, he, why did Hashem give this bracha for the barley bread that it should not only be enough, it's going to be more than enough, there will be leftovers. Why require leftovers? What was the point of leftovers? The Balaturim brings this in Parshish B'Shalach. Not over here. He says there are two times in Tanakh where the word Vehoser appears. Vehoser appears twice in Tanakh and that's it. Here and by the Mun. Here and by the Mun. By the month, they were told not to leave over any month until the next day. And we all know what happened. Dustin and Aviram left over the month till the next day, right? They left it over. It became wormy and disgusting and everything like that, right? They saved that. Here, the Talmudim listened to Elisha and left some over, and the food satisfied them because of it. Listen to this. The bracha of HaKadosh Baruch Hu is very specific. Eat and leave over. If you eat and finish everything on your plate, you're going to be hungry for more. If you eat and leave a little bit at the end, then you'll never want any more. You'll become full. The bracha was given from HaKadosh Baruch Hu to Elisha to say over to the people that the only way you're going to become full is if you leave over something, which is counterintuitive. You'd think that's the ridiculous thing. Let me stuff myself so I won't be hungry later. But no, says HaKadosh Baruch Hu, if you do eat everything on your plate, you will be hungry. And if you don't, you'll be fine. That was the bracha. Isn't that brilliant? That's how the Balaturim says it. Because the Kaddish Baruch Hu says, I want you to listen to me. I want you to do what I'm telling you to do. And that would be the bracha itself. In theory, the idea would be the same thing by us, right? Where a Kaddish Baruch Hu is saying to us, don't stuff yourselves. Eat what you need. And then you'll see that you'll have filled yourself up with it. Right then you might say to yourself, I want more, I want more. But just eat enough and then you'll be perfectly fine. Right? That's the idea behind it. Miam Lewis says this is so similar to the other miracle of Elisha. Remember, Elisha did this miracle with the oil, with the Isha Shunamis. Elio and Navi did the exact same thing with the miracle with the oil and the flour. That everything kept lasting. Do you remember when they were pouring the oil and it kept pouring and pouring as long as there were kalim there, receptacles for them to pour into? The oil just kept going and going. The same bracha the Baba Sali had, that when he poured Arak, right, for all the people that went to his Siyumim, right, to his Farbrengan, he used to call it, right, who used to go, there used to be enough for everyone there. As long as you leave something over in the bottle, you'll be able to keep pouring. That's the bracha. As long as there's something there, that's the idea behind it. In this case, however, it's a little bit different. The small amount remained a small amount, but filled every single person up. They felt like, man, I couldn't eat anything, I couldn't eat anything more than that. It's like the one meal that lasted Elio and Avi for 40 days when he's running away from Ahab and Izebel, right? This entire little bit of food was enough going all the way through. Now, we all know this. This is Rashi in the beginning of Parsh B'chuk Rashi mentions that one of the brachos, before we get to the curse of B'chuk one of the brachos that a person is supposed to get is to eat a little bit and it feels like a lot. That one of our brachos is, you'll be stuffed by the tiny little bit that you eat. You'll feel like, oh my gosh, I don't need any more. In good times, when people are in areas of satiation, the worst thing to do is to overeat. It's to eat what you have and not go crazy with it. There are some crazy things that are said about many, many gedolim. One of them, Rav Chaim that's all, just passed away. Rav Chaim would not eat until his Rebetzin came to the table. 
He wouldn't start eating until, and if his Rebetzin didn't come to the table, he didn't eat. I heard the famous question that they asked Reb Moshe Feinstein's son, Reb Ruvain Feinstein. They asked him after Reb Moshe died, did your father ever open a refrigerator on Shabbos? You know, there's Shilohs about opening the refrigerator with the motor running. If the motor's not running, what do you do if you open it up? You could cause the motor to start running. They asked him, did your father open a refrigerator on Shabbos? And Rebruvain answered, I think it was Rebruvain. It might have been Rebruvain, but I think it was Rebruvain. said, I never saw my father open a refrigerator ever in his life. Ever. He never opened the refrigerator. Just think about that for a second. That's unbelievable. When Shopsite Tzvi was going around Europe and everybody was saying, Shopsite Tzvi this, Shopsite Tzvi that, the Taz, the great Taz, sent a message and he sent messengers over to Shopsite Tzvi and what he told them to do is watch him eat. Look at how he eats. If he eats like a pig, he's not Mashiach. If he eats like a, a, like a tzaddik, if you can see it, then he's Mashiach. There's a famous, and this is unnamed, it's in the, the, the Sefer by Zevin, Shlomo Yosef Zevin, in uh, um, Sipuri Hasidim. He brings down that there was a, a, a Chassid who walked him into a, a certain misnagid shul, and he said, they said, tell us something great about your Rebbe. He says, something great about my Rebbe? I'll tell you something great about my Rebbe. He puts his spoon to his mouth and not his mouth to his spoon. They started laughing. They said, mouth is, what kind of a mile is that? I mean, that can't be so hard. Why is that so hard? He said, that, that's what my Rebbe does. So the rub of the shul said, come on, that sounds ridiculous. They said, Rebbe, you try it. So they brought him a bowl of soup. They brought him a bowl of soup and he came there and he took the spoon, right? He put it and as soon as it was coming toward his mouth, he, he just, little, little movement, just a little movement right there. He said, Rebbe, try it again. He said, nope, I see the greatness. I see the greatness. Try it, by the way. It's unbelievably hard. Unbelievable. Even consciously, it's unbelievably hard to bring the spoon to your mouth, right? I got, I tried, I was wearing a bib for like three weeks straight in order to make sure. It's almost impossible. You can't do it. It's almost impossible. Try it with the chalant right now. Take the spoon. Take the, take the fork. It's almost like you put your mouth, you put your mouth over it. Over on top, you bring your mouth to this to the fork. It's crazy. That's the idea behind it, says Rashi. And that was the bracha they were promised. The Abarbanel says normally, normally they never would have eaten barley kernels raw. Barley kernels raw. The idea is this was a time of famine. People were starving. They couldn't wait for it to be dried and prepared and roasted, etc. And that's why they even ate a bit cyclono. It shows you, says the Abarbanel, how desperate they were at this time. Now, Chaim Knievsky says in Tamit Akrov, this was likely to be bread and not matzah. He says, likely bread and not matzah, since it's called bread and not poor man's bread. But it was around Pesach time. Around Pesach time. The chametz of the lachme toda, the lechem of the korban toda, toda, remember, had 40 loaves to it. There were 30 loaves of matzah, 10 loaves of chametz. He says, in Menachos, it says, the chametz was made with one isarum. One isarum. So here's where Chaim Knievsky with his mathematical genius mind. He says, okay, so that means that one isarum is a lechem of the korban toda. One isarum is an entire lechem of the toda. That's 43 and a fifth eggs. One isarum. According to the Rambam, a kezayis is about a third of an egg. Different sheets is about that, but about a third of an egg. Not a half an egg, but a third of an egg. So each loaf, he figures out, was 130 kezayisim. Okay? Because again, a loaf made of one isarum, 43 and a fifth eggs. A kezayis is about a third of an egg. Each loaf was 130 kezayisim, minus a bit. Therefore, one loaf could feed 100 men. 
each one would get a little bit more than a kezayis. Because again, 130 kezayisim in one loaf. These are big loaves. <laughs> like, it's a big loaf. It's one of those chassan rolls, you know, the, the chassan chalas that are out there, right? It would be enough. And that would still be enough to fill them up. They each got one kezayis, and that was good enough. They ate the kezayis, no achilos, less than that amount, and left over whatever's more than the kezayis. And that's what it means by yochluvo siru. They each got a kezayis in a little bit. They ate the kezayis. They left over the little bit that was extra. Brilliant. That's Reb Chaim for you. Now, the Gemara in Ksuvis Kufay asks, how could Elisha eat bikurim? This is first, fir- first fruits. Who eats first fruits? Where is it brought? And who eats them? The bikurim were koanim. And where did the koanim eat it? In Yerushalayim. Right? Elisha was not a Kohen that we know of. Elisha does not seem to be a Kohen. Rashi says that Elisha's father was from Shevet Gud. I'm sorry? Was he a Bechor? That's a good question, actually. But it shouldn't make a difference because even Bechors can't eat Bikurim. So it shouldn't make that much of a difference. We don't know. We don't know. But in Divrei Yomim, Perak Aleph, uh, Perak Hay, Divrei Yomim Aleph, Perak Hay, Puzzle Good Base, we seem to say that Elisha's from Shevet Gud. He was not a Kohen. Anyway, there's no question he wasn't in the base of Mikdash. Remember, this is Malchus Yisrael versus Malchus Yehuda. He was nowhere near the base of Mikdash, nowhere near Yerushalayim. How is this man bringing Bikurim to Elisha? And why was Elisha accepting it? You can't accept that. Why would he be allowed to accept, be allowed to accept Bikurim like this? Anyway, Tosvos on this says, it's a little bit dochik. Even if he was a Kohen, at the time of the Shomron, right, he was in the Shomron, you can only eat in Yerushalayim. Rashi was countering the fact that Elisha is not a Kohen. Tosa says, but it's not even in Yerushalayim. There are two problems here. He's not a Kohen. Even if he was a Kohen, he wouldn't be in Yerushalayim. Either way, the Gemara answers that bringing a gift to a Talmud Chacham is like bringing Bikurim to the base of Mikdash. That's what the Gemara concludes. It must be that giving a gift is like Bikurim. Meaning, no, the guy from Baal Shalisha did not bring actual Bikurim to Elisha. No, come on, that's not what's happening. He brought a gift to Elisha. And the Gemara tells us that a, a gift being given to a Tamachacham is as Choshuv, it's just as Choshuv as bringing Bikurim. It's as if he went ahead and brought Bikurim. The Pnei Yoshua says a whole piece over here. I'm kind of going to skip it. It's a longer Pnei Yoshua, but you can look it up yourself. It's right over there. The Hafla and the Eitz Yosef also say the exact same thing. It's interesting to go into why eating Bikurim outside of Yerushalayim versus eating Bikurim as a Kohen. What's the difference between the Machlokas Rashi Tosfos? It's right there in that Gemara. But the Yaivitz, Rabbi Yaakov Emden says, if it was Bikurim, who says they were being given to Elisha to eat right there? Who says that's what it was supposed to be? Maybe they were being given to Elisha to bring to Yerushalayim. Maybe this guy from Baal Shalisha said, I can't get to Yerushalayim because they had these partisios, they had these guards up over there. But Elisha could go anywhere. So maybe people brought their Bikurim to Elisha to bring to Yerushalayim and Elisha from a word of God said, no, we're eating it here. Maybe the guy Mamish did. He thought that bringing the Bikurim to Elisha was the smartest thing to do to get to Yerushalayim and they had no choice they ended up doing it. Maybe that's why Rashi had to explain, right? Elisha's not a coin, etc. Maybe that's that. The Marsha even says, the Gemara doesn't want to say Bikurim just means the first fruit to open because that's certainly shot in the Pasuk. Because why would the Pasukim need to tell us that was the first fruit there? It must be it's something about giving gifts to a Tamachacham. But right there, you have to ask yourself, why is giving a gift to a Tamachacham considered Bikurim? I go to my Rebbe right before Shabbos and I just bring him a gift. I bring him a gift for Shabbos. I bring him, I don't know, like those little Coke bottle thingies, the little uh, the gummy things, you know, those guys. Like, let's say my Rebbe really likes those little Coke thingies, right? Well, I, I, I don't know. That, that, that's a bad one. Cherries, is that better? 
The worms? Is anybody into gummies? Is nobody here into gummies? I don't mean like... Okay. Do you like the Coke ones the best? Sour gummies are the best? I don't think you're human. Are you sure? No, they can't be. The sours? Really? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I can't compare. Wait, I can't. I, I, hold on. I'm, I'm not going to get over this. Paul, we're going to talk about this later. No, no, no. It's, Paul, we're, we're going to sit down. We're going to sit down. I, we're going to have a gummy, gummy eat-off, okay? We'll, we'll see. The best? Make, they make my top 20. Yeah, for sure. Oh, my gosh. Top 20. Top 20. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. yeah. You don't have a top 20? So, I don't know. Why would this be, why would this be possible that considered like get, bringing Bikurim, and not any other korban. Why isn't it, I don't Why not say, if I bring a gift to a Talmud Chacham, it's like I brought a korban toda. I, I'm, I'm a Thanksgiving offering. Maybe if I bring a gift to a Talmud Chacham, it's like bringing a shlamim or a chatas and an asham. Because the Kohen eats the chatas and asham. Maybe it should be like that. Why be kurim? Why specifically be kurim? So there's a couple answers here. The Avne Ezel says, by every other korban, there's two parts to the kapara. The Kohen eats part of it. And the rest of the korban is burnt on the Mizbeach. You have a chatos. Part of it is burnt on the Mizbeach. Part of it is eaten by the Kohen. Okay, so there's two parts of this right over here. The part that's consumed on the Mizbeach cannot be given to a Talmud Chacham. A Talmud Chacham is not a Mizbeach. But he could be the Kohen eating it. So you can't choose a regular korban where part of the korban is put on the Mizbeach and part of it is given to the Kohen because giving a gift to a Talmud Chacham would not match that. So therefore, Chatzos is out, Asham is out, Ola is for sure out, because Ola, there's nothing eaten by the Kohen. Shlomim is out, because again, that you'd eat yourself, and giving a gift to a Tamakachim is not you eating. And even a Mincha is out, because the Mincha, you have this part that's brought on the Mizbeach, and the rest of it is eaten by the Kohanim. So again, what gift would work with this? And the answer is Bikurim. Bikurim are not brought on the Mizbeach. You bring it to Shalayim, to the base of Mikdash. You say over those psukim, and then you give it to the Kohanim to eat. It's only the Kohanim that eat it. If you wanted to find a gift that perfectly matches what Bikurim is, right? It's giving a gift to a Tamachachim. Giving that gift to a Tamachachim would fit it perfectly. That's the idea behind it. Yeah. Truma is a Mysos. But Truma is a Mysos is given. Truma is given to a Kohen, but it's not a gift in the base of Mikdash. You know what I'm saying? And Mysor is given to a Levi, but again, it's not a gift in the base of Mikdash. If we wanted to pick a Korban, so to speak, what would be the best idea? Bikurim. You bring it in there, you say over the Psukim, there is a Kapara for them, there's a Kapara that you say in there, and then it's eaten by the Kohen. What a great idea. That's how the idea, that's how the Avne Ezel says it. Now, the Ion Yaakov says, what's the whole point of Bikurim? What's the whole point of Bikurim? It's a Karasatov. Thanking HaKadosh Baruch Hu for everything that God gave us. We have one thing after the other. Same thing applies when you give a gift to a Talmud Chacham. You're thanking him for what he's done, whether it's davening for the city, or whether it's helping you out with a psak, or whether it's just being involved in your life. That's exactly what it is. Giving a gift to a Talmud Chacham is the same concept of Akara Satov that you have by a, great, by a, by a Kaddish Baruch Hu. It's the same idea. That's how the Ion Yaakov says it in the Ein Yaakov. The Lacham Simla suggests, he says the connection is, that by Bikurim you recognize that Hashem did it for you. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is the one that did it for you. It's not just HaKadosh Satov. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is the one that's running everything. So too, you're recognizing that a Talmud Chacham runs everything in this world. That a Talmud Chacham's word is so special that HaKadosh Baruch Hu listens. Tzadik goes there Hashem Mekayim. That if a Tzadik is doing it, then all of a sudden, and maybe that's why Elisha is called an Elokim for that reason. 
The Ein Yaakov says, based on a Medrash Tanchuma, that in Parski Sub, he says that if a person sees his fruits growing, he puts it in a basket, brings the basket to Yushalayim, he says, I'm not moving from here until you take care of me. Right? He, that works. Apparently, you are allowed to make requests. I think that's the idea of what happened when people started bringing to Hasidim, they started giving them kvitlach, right? They gave them a kvitl, and then afterward they would ask a request from the, from the great tzaddik. We have that even in the Navi, with Shmuel on Navi, where they went to go see the roa, the seer, they went to go see that Navi, to go see what was going on and what they needed to do. They had to bring him a gift, Right? They brought him a little coin. And then afterward, the Navi would daven for them. That's brilliant. That's exactly the same idea over here. But there's something more to this. And it's something that's bothered me for so long. It's a kasha that I think everybody can ask on this. What was Elisha doing in the Malchus Yisrael? Elisha was the greatest Navi out there. Elio Navi also. Why were they in Malchus Yisrael? They couldn't be to the base. They couldn't go to the base of Mikdash. There were partisios. There were guards. They were keeping them from going to the base of Mikdash. So why were they there? They should have left. They should have gotten rid of everything and said, "Guys, we can't learn here. We can't do anything. These people are all devotezara. They're horrible people. Ahab was a horrible person. Omri, his father, was a horrible person. The, the kings at the time were terrible people. The people at the time were devotezara. Why wouldn't they have left? And listen to this." When Yeravim Benavot says the Oznayim Latorah, when Yeravim Benavot put guards on the road to make sure no one would do Aliyah Laregel, Mistama, those guards would stop them from doing Bikurim as well. It makes sense that they would. If they wouldn't let them do Aliyah Laregel, that didn't mean during the rest of the year they were free to do anything. It sounds like they were never allowed to see the base of Mikdash. They were never allowed to go to the base. It's not for sure, but it sounds like they weren't allowed to go to the base of Mikdash. So they stopped them completely. What was Yeravim Benavad afraid of? Does anybody remember? Yeravim was afraid. He said, I can't let them go. I can't let them go to the base of Mikdash. Why can't I let them go? Because Rechavim was the king at the time from Malchus Yehuda. And only Malchai base David, only the kings from base David were allowed to sit in the Azara. Any other Malachim, anybody else was not allowed to. When they see the Kavod accorded to Rechavim, they're going to ditch me, said Yeravim, and they're going to go to Rechavim. So out of cover, he was worried that he'd lose his kingship because everybody's going to see it. So he said, all right, I don't want anybody going to the base of Mikdash anymore. So he stopped everyone from going. That's why this man from Baal Shalisha and likely other people as well figured out another way to bring Bikurim. Now listen, they were potter from being Korbanos. They didn't have a choice. They, they had no choice. They were far enough away that they weren't chayiv to bring a Korban Pasach. They were far enough away, because remember, if you are a Bederech Rechoka, you're potter from a Korban Pasach. If you have a Chatos and an Asham and a Shlomim, whatever you want to bring, if you can't go there, you're potter. You can't go. You can't go. You simply can't go. There were guards on the road. There was nothing they could do. They couldn't go. Okay, so they can't go. But what could they do about Bikurim? Bikurim, is it a din in the base of Mikdash? Or is it a din in a Kohen eating it? They weren't sure. They weren't sure what to do. So you know what they did? They created a concept where they'd be able to bring Bikurim without going to the base of Mikdash. What do they do, says Aznaim the Torah? They said to themselves, let's bring it to the Kohen Asher Yiyeh Go to the Kohen that's there in those days. That's a Pasuk in Parshiki Savo about the Bikurim. Bring it to the Kohen in those days. In those days, we couldn't bring it to a Kohen in the base of Mikdash. So we'll bring it to the next best thing. What's the next best thing if it's not a Kohen in the base of Mikdash? the greatest Talmud Chacham out there, Elisha. They figured out these people. They were like, wait, we got to do something. We got to bring these Bikurim somewhere. What do we do with Bikurim? So even though normally it would be Usr 
for a Kohen, a non-Kohen, to eat Bikurim outside of Yerushalayim, these people didn't have a choice. They didn't have a choice. They wanted to do something, so they created a new concept. What that new concept was, is how the Osnayim Torah says it is, they brought their Bikurim to the greatest person of their time and his Talmidim, the 2200 Talmidim, in it doesn't say you have to bring it to the base of Mikdash. They darshaned it and they said, you can bring it to the place where the Shechina is. Where is the Shechina? Where Elisha and his 2200 Talmidim were sitting. The Yeshiva and its Talmidim became the Makoma Mikdash. They became the actual Makoma Mikdash. They went to the chosen place to the Kohen, the Rosh Yeshiva, the Rosh Hanavi, the Rosh Nevuah at the time, and they gave it over to Elisha. Maybe that's why the bread was blessed. Because guys, where else do you see this miracle of a tiny little bit of something all of a sudden being so blessed that everybody felt full? You only find it by one other place, officially one other place. The Lechem Apanim. The Lechem Apanim that was divided up to all the different Kohanim. In the Besa Mikdash, you had a Kezayis and you felt full. That's where it happened. It happened there. So the same bracha that happened in the Besa Mikdash with the Lechem Apanim, where you had a Kezayis and you felt full, could be used out here in the Makoma Mikdash, the Yeshiva, with the Kohanim, who's Elisha and his men. Isn't that brilliant? Think about this. That's the answer of how everything went there. He said it had been like those lechem upon him, like that lechem upon him. It may even be why Elisha and his men never went to Malchus Yehuda. They wanted to give the people of Malchus Yisrael an opportunity to give Bikurim. Maybe they knew that there had to be a base of Medrash there, or else they would have been exiled years and years earlier. They were already exiled by Sancherev, just a few years after, it's about 60 years after Elisha. But at least they're giving them a chance to have a Mikdash Ma'at in Malchus Yisrael, a real Mikdash, not a base El, the, the golden calves that were in base El and, 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 and up and done. Something different that they'd actually be able to have. Maybe that's the reason why Elisha was Zoha to so many miracles. He did 18 miracles, 18 huge miracles outside of Malchus Yisrael because his yeshiva was the base of Mikdash. Of course he's able to do miracles. He's able to do things that no one else is able to do because he's living in a base of Mikdash. He's got it right there with him. It's a Mikdash Ma'at, a real Mikdash Ma'at. And he was allowed, it helped many of Malchus Yisrael dedicate themselves and do the right things at the right time. And it could be that's why Elisha was chosen to take over after Elioah, after he was told to go, after Elioah, he went up to Shemayim because he was the perfect person for this. He knew how to make those miracles happen. Isn't that brilliant? I know you guys have questions. Can I answer your questions? Um, Is that you have a question or no? Yeah. yeah. What's that? Um, I understand why people in the Malchus Israel able to give the Bikurim. Mm-hmm. Why is Elisha the Talmudian still able to eat it? I guess because it didn't have the status of Bikurim. Technically, Bikurim was putter because you couldn't bring it. So there was no choice. What, what are you going to do? And there's no din in burning it like we do by Hafrasha Schala nowadays. There's no din in burning it. Like now, nowadays, what do you do with Bikurim nowadays? We don't have the concept. Right? You have to tie the string around it and then bring it over and whatever it is. We don't have it. So Mistama, that's what they did. They created a way to sort of have Bikurim, even though you didn't need to do Bikurim like we do nowadays. I, I think that's the idea. Like an Asham to, uh, what's it called? Um, that's a totally different story. An Asham is a Korban. And a Korban has a status of Hektish. Yeah, that's a different story. Bikurim is a little bit different because it, it's a string and they tie it around, etc. It, it, it's a little bit different. In theory, you don't have to do it. Like, it's a mitzvah, but it's a mitzvah kiyumis as opposed to a chiyuvis, right? I think, right? I think that's how the Michal Shinoch puts it, right? So it might be different in that if you're mekayim it, you're good, but it's not that you're chayiv to bring it. It's that if you want to tie the string around and bring it up with you, then you can do it. Yeah, Zavid. Is there not one Kohen that can do it? Is there not one Kohen that can do it? Is there not one Kohen that can do it? Is there not one Kohen that can do it? Is there not one Kohen that can do it
I hear what you're saying. Like, couldn't there be anybody else? Yes, there probably was. But the point of the Azan and the Torah is they wanted to find a way to bring Bikurim. And there was no coin that could go to the base of Mikdash. No. So if you're not bringing it to the base of Mikdash anyway, then what's the point of bringing it to the coin? Right? And if you're not doing it by the coin and you're not going to the base of Mikdash, you might as well give it to the coin of that time, which is Alicia. Correct. It, it, it would have to be, it's a big chiddush. It's a massive chiddush. I, I wanted to go more into that, but th- this, is a, this is a crazy, crazy idea. Um, uh, there's a couple other things over here that I, uh, regarding this idea of Gehazi itself and what's going on with the famine. If you want to check out the Torah's Moshe, the Chassam Sofer has a whole reason as to how we know that Gehazi was actually a very stingy person. Stingy person based on this passage. It's a good shot over here. But, okay, let's go to the end. We also... We said above that Elisha had 2,200 Talmidim. But that's not exactly correct. The Gemara in Ksuvah's Kovvav Amidalaf says, Rav Yosef told the Rabbanan, when all the Talmidim left and went home from Elisha, when the Talmidim left and went home, there were 2,200 Talmidim that remained by Elisha and ate by his table. Do you hear this? Meaning, 2,200 Talmidim stayed. There were really many more Talmidim in his yeshiva. They all left and they went home for something. These guys stayed by Elisha and they ate by him. They were, he never, and even at that point, he says, he never davened for the famine to end. He never davened for that famine to end. So here's the question that we ask over here. The question you could ask is, how could he, how could, how could anyone daven? Rav Yosef's whole line in the Gemara over there is, how can I daven for a famine to end? if Elisha had 2,200 Talmidim that remained and many other Talmidim that left, and he never davened for a fast to end. Does everybody hear that question? It's like weird. Rabbi Yosef said, like, I can't daven for something for a famine to end. Clearly God wants it, and Elisha never davened for the famine to end, so how could I possibly do that? Now that's weird. Does that mean we should never daven for bad things to stop? Because Elisha never davened for a bad thing to stop? If something terrible is happening, if there is a famine, chas shalom in Chicago... Should we all say like, oh, we can't fast, we can't do anything about it because Elisha never, never stopped the famine. He never davened for it, so therefore we can't do it. Doesn't that sound a little bit strange? We say in Tainus, Yud Testament Aleph, it's a straight out Gemara, Al kol tzorosh lo tovo b'tzibor, and any tzor that shouldn't happen to the tzibor, we say masri in we daven, we daven. So why wouldn't we daven for this? Why is Rav Yosef saying, I'm not davening because Elisha didn't? Smarsha says Rav Yosef was referring to a different type of Rav. There's a Rav Shalbatsoris. A Rav Shalbatsoris is where there's a little rain, the prices have gone up, right, but there's still food available. That's a different story. It certainly seems this was the Rav they were dealing with at the time. There's a Gemara in Sanhedrin Yudbezim and all that seems that way. The prices were up, but there was still food available at the time. But if it's a Rav Shalkliya, where people are mamish dying, that's when a person should daven. Just to put it into like modern contemporary like times right now. Are you allowed to daven for inflation to go down? It's a super interesting question. Technically, we can still afford our, our lives, right? And we're okay. Yes, gas is $5, you know, $5 per gallon, right? Food is going up. And definitely things are going up everywhere, right? We know that. But are you allowed to daven for that? For it to go down or not? Now listen to this. Rav Yosef, according to this marsha says, by a rov shel batsores, a rov where food is, is still available, it's just expensive, Rav Yosef said, you can't daven, because Elisha didn't. 
If it's a Rav Shokliya Chas Vishon, where people are dying, then you're allowed to daven. But a Rav Shabbatsoras, maybe not. It, that's crazy. According to that, you can't. We don't daven for that. Because Elisha didn't. We just hope that things get better. It's a strange thing. Yeah, Dave. I hear you. Yeah, I, I hear you. I hear you. Meaning, whenever somebody davens, obviously, whenever somebody davens for something for themselves, I want to win a raffle, right? That means everybody else involved in that raffle is not going to win. If I daven for that, I'm making other people lose out. So is that rub shabbatzoris? But then rub shoklia, I guess there's no winners. In a rub shoklia where there's no winners, then you can daven. But again, doesn't that sound strange? That means... I can't ever daven for something where someone else in the world may be affected by it. That's weird. That's a weird line from Rabbi Yosef. Now the Yaivitz says something as well. The Yaakov Emden says something very, very similar. He asked from Malachim Bey's Perak Dalid Pasachotei, where it seemed the rub at the time was absolutely terrible. And even then, even though people were dying, Elisha never davened for it to stop. Even then, Elisha never davened for it to stop. You can't say that there were a bunch of Rashaim and Elisha didn't want to daven for Rashaim. Because again, Elisha and his students were also affected by it in the Shomron. And it was a horrible, horrible hunger where people were eating their own children and eating animals. And yet he never davened for it. So it seems strange. It seems, the Yavit says, I don't know if that's the correct answer. The Marsha is saying it, but I don't know if that's the correct answer. Now, Pene Yoshua says a little bit different. Elisha must have known, and maybe Rav Yosef knew this as well, that there's a difference. Yes, 100%, you can daven for inflation to go down. Yes, you can daven even by a Rav Shabbat Soros. And they knew, at that time, Elisha knew it was an Eden de Rizcha. It was a time of anger. And therefore, he could not daven, and that's when you're not supposed to daven. Do we, do we know if it's an Eden Rizcha or not? Do we know if God is angry or not? You have no idea then we can daven, because we don't know. Then you should be okay. Then it should be perfectly fine. But is it crazy? Says the Chassam Sofer, and we'll end with this. You should not daven if the time for rain has already passed, and you'll be asking for a miracle to happen. At that point, you can't daven. Right now, we can still daven for inflation to go down. You can daven for prices to go down, because that wouldn't be miraculous. That could be part of the natural world. There could be ways to naturally open up pipelines and make prices go down. There are ways of doing that. You could do something like that. But asking for bread to last was something that happened in the base of Mikdash, right? And therefore, because it didn't look so much like a miracle, after all, do I know if you're full, if you only eat a little kezayis of food? Is that miraculous? That a kezayis would like openly miraculous? They eat a tiny little bit of food? No, it's not. Because no one will tell if such a thing happened. We say in human Lama test, people eat a little bit and they'd be full. It could happen to anybody. You could be full after having one yogurt. You just eat a yogurt. You're like, you know what? I'm full now. I, I don't need anything else. Is that a miracle? Says the Chassam Sofer, that's when you're allowed to daven. You're allowed to daven for something to happen that doesn't look absolutely miraculous. But if it's miraculous, then you can't ask for it. That we don't daven for, we're not allowed to do. Is that interesting? So again, we have a three-way machlokas here. Can you daven for inflation to go down? The way the marshal is saying it, it seems like no. You can only daven if it's so horrible people are dying. That's how the marshal says it. The yaivitz, or I will say the Pnei Yoshua, the Pnei Yoshua says you can daven for it if it's Eden de Rizcha. 
you can't daven for it. I'm sorry. If it's an eating risk of, there's an anger time. But if there's no anger, then you're allowed to daven for it. That would be okay. And then the Chassam Sofer says that you're allowed to daven for it as long as it won't look like an open miracle. If it looks like an open miracle, then you got a problem. All right, guys. We'll stop with that. Have a great Shabbos, everybody.